This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Well, this is Marcus Jones of the U.S. Naval Academy History Department, and our guest today is Captain Michael Jung of the Naval War College uh, Department of Leadership and Ethics, or, or College of Leadership and Ethics, I think it's called. He's a, a graduate in 1990 of the U.S. Naval Academy. I was gratified to see in political science with a minor in German and got his Ph.D. in 2018 from Salva Regina University uh, with a dissertation uh, that eventually became the book that we're going to talk about today. He was a surface warfare warfare officer, still active duty in the Navy, served the floats on, I think, four or five ships before becoming the 14th commanding officer of the USS Whidbey Island. So he himself has uh, substantial command experience. He knows from which he speaks. He's written extensively uh, in in different outlets uh, online and in Proceedings Magazine. But what we're going to talk about today is his book of July 2018, entitled Crimes of Command, a fascinating study that looks at the Navy's changed and ever-changing understanding of accountability, uh, responsibility and culpability from the end of World War II until today. The study works through a number of pivotal historical inflection points, which we'll hopefully have a chance to talk a little bit about here, to show how the Navy's cherished ideal of accountability is, as he puts it, and this is a quote, a tradition without substance, a well-meaning concept romanticized by the inexperienced inexperienced and used to maintain control over the Navy and its heritage. Uh, I I think that it's probably the most insightful book I've read about navigating uh, the Navy's core concepts of effective command. Uh, So welcome, Captain Young. Should I call you Captain Young or... or, Michael works just fine. I'll call you Michael. Let me ask first, how a career surface warfare officer who spent so much time at sea, a, a genuinely salty mariner came to write a, a study of, of this rather abstract naval understanding of command in the post-World War II era? Well, it was a long process. The, I, mean, I guess I can probably start, I mean, start at the beginning and go on through until you come to the end. During my first division officer tour, so from 1991 to 1994, we had two department heads fired, and I had to within about nine months of being on board, removed my chief petty officer from the division. Division. He went into the department, worked for the department head. It's a whole sordid story about how he goes to court-martial and all sorts of other things. So from the beginning, I got a chance to see what detachment for cause looked like. And the most important lesson I took out of that, nobody talked about it after the people left. It just wasn't discussed. And then as time goes by, you begin to hear these stories about, well, if you fail this inspection or fail that inspection, you're going to get removed from command. And I should say, I use the word removed. The You'll hear fired. You'll hear relieved. Fired doesn't really work because the individual's not removed from the service. They continue on sometimes for many years serving. And 
relieved is what happens in a normal process. I mean, technically they are relieved, but I like the phrase removed from command. Uh, and that's just getting to that language, having to figure the language out was part of the challenge. So roll of 2004, I finished my executive officer tour and I worked for, uh, you know, two great captains, both became three stars. And at one point during one of the, one part of their command tours, we had two incidents of off-duty accidents where sailors died. And other than a midshipman cruise, it was the only experience I had with sailors dying on any command I was at. It was exceptionally fortunate. And that was on one ship? That was on one ship, two in the course of a summer. Um, and it, it varies. On some ships, that's not normal. Some ships, it's normal. Uh, aircraft carriers gonna have, with 5,000 people is going to have you know, sailors are going to die. It's just statistically part of what happens. So anyway, we're as the second guy dies, and the first one was a drowning, the second one was a motorcycle accident, and nobody's doing anything wrong on the ship, but the commanding officer was concerned, very concerned, that he was going to be fired, going to be removed from command because of that second off-duty death. That was about the same time that, so it's, you know, post 9-11, pre-invasion of Iraq. Don Rumsfeld has begun his, we need to bring down the number of accidents, we need to get safer out there. And there was a push to try and minimize accidental death. But the problem with part of that language, and this is where I began looking at language, the phrase, phrases went from we need to minimize or reduce to eliminate. And you simply cannot eliminate accident. You can reduce down to an exceptionally low level. And that's Part of what I come to in the book is how much safer it is today to be underway on board a Navy ship. To be, there's, I think, 40 ships, 40, 50 ships underway in the Navy right now. Today, they are probably the absolute safest places to be on the planet because they didn't haven't pulled into port since the COVID thing started. So uh -huh. they're all happy. I mean, it's like a whole bunch of Nathan Jameses running around out there uh, in the, you know, it's not the red flu, but. It, it is a very safe place to be right now. Uh, so 2004 rolls in. All of a sudden, there's this out of nowhere, it seems like, a spike in commanding officers being removed from command. And you start getting some really publicized removals from command. A, a 2004, you see a spike unlike um, well, at that point. And, yeah, sort and of. And the reason I say that is nobody been tracking it. And one of the things, but 2004, for whatever reason, the, makes the press, uh, Navy Times runs it, you get start to get this idea that there, two, there was, I think, 24 or 26 commanders fired in that year. Uh, the Navy said, OK, this is odd. Let's take a look at it. It did it commissioned an IG report and the IG report came back and I happened to be working in the Pentagon one quarter over from where the public affairs officer was. And I heard the report was out and I went down and begged and pleaded. And this is before I learned how to do freedom of information act requests and got a copy of it, read that thing through two or three times. And it basically came down to, we're not really sure how many commanding officers get removed from command because we don't document it. Some are, or some are just leave early with bad fitness reports. And that's as far as it goes. Some are removed, but not officially detached for cause. And then that doesn't make it into the Bureau's 
tracking numbers. So the end result was, one, we don't know how many commanding officers get removed from command each year. And two, we really can't find anything specific amongst them that points to any trend. They That's were not all. It is and it isn't. We're talking no, about. It, is... it, it, it suggests an organization unconcerned with, uh, to some extent, where its leadership is coming from, how it's conditioned, and what happens to people when they take command. If, if it's a leadership that's not looking back over the history of, of removal and the pretext for it and, and the outcomes of these careers. Well, the so think about this. Uh, let me go with the, I'll go with it since COVID's on everyone's mind right now. How many active cases of COVID-19 are in the United States at this moment? We don't know. We have a number of tested and tested positive. We have a number of tested and tested negative, but what we don't have is how many people have it but weren't tested. The same problem with the commanding officers being removed. If a removal is public but not officially detached for cause, does that count? If the removal is not public but officially detached for cause, that'll count, but nobody else knows. That's the forest falling in a tree in sorry tree falling in the forest and no one's around to hear it so it's not that the navy wasn't interested it's that the navy's a really big place and different people handle leadership challenges in different ways the navy is very jealous about command authority especially the more senior you get so the 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 06 who is in command of 05s will want to do things in a specific way. And as long as that way is not illegal, immoral, unsafe, it's probably going to be able to do that. So if a commanding officer is not performing as necessary and you can move the rotation date up by three or even six months, then that commanding officer can roll out and move on without a black mark on the record. Uh-huh. The commanding officer, you know, the 06 commanding officer down the street could see the exact same situation and determine that a non-judicial punishment followed by detachment for cause, public hearing, and solve the same problem in a different way. Uh, case in point, the way that now former acting assistant secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley, I should say acting secretary slash assistant secretary uh, or undersecretary. I still can't keep the unders and the assistants straight. Uh, the way that he handled Brett Crozier, very public. But I wonder, did anybody start detachment for cause paperwork? I don't know. That, that's a fascinating, fascinating case. It's the one currently on everyone's mind, being only a, a few days old now. Uh, I, I was hoping that we'd have a chance to uh, to talk about it uh, more intensively here after we work through the study. I, I, I oh, don't, sure. I don't, I want to disappear down that rabbit hole too early. <laughs> uh, uh, I guess what I'm trying to do is make sure I sprinkle in some of the things that are going on now. So, And the most important thing in this is, and this is something that not everyone fully appreciates, this is not a study that is trying to attack the Navy. This is not a study that's trying to blame anybody. This was something that I went through and said, why is this going on? What can we learn from it? What is it telling us? I ascribe no goodness or badness beyond that. 
Uh, I can't think of anybody probably better suited to write a study like this than you, in part because of the career you had prior to, to becoming uh, a professor at the War College. Um, how, in the course of your career, were you brought up as an officer, a young officer, and then a field grade officer preparing uh-oh. command? What are some of the experiences you might have had, the specific education the Navy provided, the guidance uh, inflicted or directed uh, <laughs> that, that putatively established the groundwork for your, your own assumption of responsibility for a ship and all the people on it? Well, or how does the Navy do that generally? Let me, let me combine the okay. two. It's the general there, view well, of your own. Yeah, because the, the, the general – first – I am apparently genetically predisposed to asking questions and challenging paradigms. You uh, say that like it's a liability. Uh, it has been on more than one occasion. Uh, there is, and I'm one of the, I got a letter of instruction as a student here at the War College, mostly because I asked a lot of really hard questions of people. And that was interpreted as being disrespectful, uh, which was never the intent. But as we know, intent matched up with perception are two different things, and quite often the perception wins through. Um, Challenging an esteemed historian over something that he said that was factually incorrect made him feel like he didn't know what he was talking about, and I was blamed for that, not the fact that he was factually incorrect. So that's – but that and that all ties into what I wrote about. Uh, So – you had a very successful career as a student. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. So Naval Academy graduate, I, sh- I remember showing up the Naval Academy, and I'm thinking, God, everybody here is going to be brilliant. This is going to be awesome. Some are, and some aren't. Uh, some couldn't name half the countries in Europe. And considering this was you know, still at the end of, you know, not quite the end of the Cold War when I first got there, we still thought we had you know, nuclear War was still kind of hanging over us. So from an early standpoint, early on there in Annapolis, I got a, I was taught and I don't think I fully appreciated at the time that not everything that you get told is true, that not every impression is true. Uh, roll through the Naval Academy uh, where I re- repeatedly call Annapolis a great place to be from. And I'm not. I'm not a heavy ring knocker. I have only been back a half dozen times since graduation 30 years ago, uh, once for a conference, once for a classmate's funeral. Uh, Does having been a graduate nevertheless have anything to do with the success you feel like you enjoyed or the understanding about what leadership and eventually <laughs> command? Well, it, it definitely oh, has had, had an impact on my success because I roll on board my first ship and the captain there, who's not a Naval Academy grad, uh, I check on board expecting to be at the auxiliaries officer, even though I'd been to damage control school. I get brought up to see the captain after I'm helicoptered on board. It's the end of Desert Storm. Ship's headed home from the from working in the Red Sea. They've got a, one broken shaft, and they're just, just limping on the way home. And I check in with the captain that evening. He says, hey, by the way, uh, I've decided that you're going to be the damage control assistant and not the auxiliaries officer. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that you're a Naval Academy grad and Naval Academy grads starting off are just better and more able to do than others. Now, me being a very arrogant 22 year old said, hell yeah, I agree with you on that. 
Uh, but I was also tossed into a job that was way beyond what a new, brand new ensign should be doing. I have found over time that the number, the people I end up being uh, simpatico with in the service, many of them ended up being damage control assistants in their first tour. Uh, and there was a lot of responsibility. It was broad across the ship. I worked for a an unliked executive officer the first time. Uh, the second executive officer was very, very competent, but something of a bully. He was a classic XO of the time. And the third was uh, also very competent, but also very cold. And I got a, that gave me a really good understanding of different ways of doing things over the course of my career. And you mentioned the you know, lessons inflicted. I have had either the good fortune or the misfortune of having learned from a lot of people that weren't necessarily very good at their job. And I'm not going to name any names because I want everybody who hears this to be wondering, was it me? Was it not me? Uh, in the same way that I know that having talked to my division officers and still talk to some of them today, there are things that I did wrong in command. There are things that I chose so, to do that a, weren't necessarily a discussion right. like this. Right. Let me uh, um, go ahead. Let me move on to the actual study. Uh, OK, if, if you don't mind. Well, so I, well, here's the. And let me maybe I can bring it into you for this. I was going into command having seen all those things, but not really having seen you know, my, when I was in an XO, the two commanders there did a good job. But there's the spike in removals and no one's talking about why commanding officers are removed from command. And then there's another spike about 2010. And I was curious again and I'd begun cataloging, making my own spreadsheet, looking for trends. Uh, trying to make sense of the mess. And then I end up at the War College. We know that we're putting roots down. Salve Regina has a broad-based humanities PhD program. It was close. The, v, uh, the GI Bill, post-9-11 GI Bill, would pay the tuition. And the discipline there would allow me to write that dissertation. That dissertation, I was going to write that one way or the other. Uh, so I figured I might as well get some paper in the way. You said something very striking at the outset, namely that people weren't talking about these dismissals or removals from command inside the Navy. Uh, when you reflected on them, you were struck by that. Why do you think that is? Why, why were these topics taboo or not discussed or an important element in the way officers interacted with each other in the wardroom? What do you think happened? What did it mean? You naturally look at the head of the table to the guy who's in command of the ship himself, and he's in a position to speculate. Was that not an important element in the way all of you considered what you were doing and the futures you had, the oh, culture it, it, of the Navy you were a part of? Well, here, let me, so I'll, I'll t I, will, I worked my first tour or was it kind of dirty laundry? It's, it's just not talked about because it's, well, it, it's that, but it's also the process. So I guess the best one is the most recent. Um, I was working I was part of Joe Sestak's personal staff when Mike Mullen fired him. And the, what happened is, and it's not uncommon for everybody who's on in a command when the boss gets fired, I came, I went to work on a month, came home on a Monday afternoon, everything was fine. And on Tuesday morning, all of a sudden, my boss is fired. We have no idea who's coming in to take his spot. We have no idea what our future is going to be like. 
we hear and our boss doesn't come back. We never see him again. And this is a guy we'd spent 12 hour days with prior to that. And I was the newest guy on the staff. The other guys have been there for years. Uh, well, I don't know the circumstances around his his firing. He had a reputation in the Navy as a very temperamental and demanding boss. Did uh, it have was, something to do with that? Uh, it did and it didn't. Um, it, I was working in the office with, at the time, he had newly promoted Captain Sean Buck. So you can walk over to Buchanan House and, and ask him to tell you the story sometime if you want. But... Uh, I think it's very unlikely. Joe Sestak was in a lot of ways like Hyman Rickover. There were he had an outsized, first brilliant, an outsized persona, was well known for many things, some true and some not true. There was a cadre of people who enjoyed working with and for Joe Sestak. There was an outer cadre of people who largely just suffered from having worked around Joe Sestak. They weren't in the inner circle, so they didn't see the day-to-day doings and understandings. And then there was the group on the furthest out circle that barely ever met the man, but only heard stories from that second ring. And that's where the myth explodes, stories of people working so late at the Pentagon working within Joe Sestak's offices that they slept in their cars and would shower at the Pentagon Athletic Center. And some of that happened. A lot of it's because he was incapable of making a decision. uh, But he also delivered for two consecutive bosses. And there was a lot of internal personal politics at play as well. uh, Between who worked for who and how. And there's, that, and that's part of the th- one of the other things I learned in this. And I was an insight I got from my office mate at the time, Captain Eric Shaw, who would, was a retired Coast Guard officer. And he had led the Coast Guard's leadership school, their version of our Navy Leadership and Ethics Center. And as we were talking this through as I was beginning my process, he said that they had looked at a couple of the firing and the Coast Guard's so much smaller, but they also know each other much better. And they, he, they had looked at some of these firings in the Coast Guard, and he came to realize that the only thing that really mattered wasn't the incident itself, wasn't the commanding officer, the crew. It wasn't the hand that was dealt. It wasn't how well trained anybody was. It all came down to who that commanding officer's boss was. And that was the, that was the most important thing about any of, of these issues. I mean, to the point where I, my, some of my early spreadsheets, I was trying to catalog who did the firing, who, who announced the removal. Uh, and that was a really difficult path to go down. It was, in some cases, you can't find it. It's very rare what? to have someone like Thomas Modley stand up and say, I did it. It's much more yeah. common to have someone removed via direction from above but not overt direction and that's where the whole unlawful command influence thing starts to rear its head i think that comes across very well in the book there are three core arguments to the book okay. struck by the first the first you 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 make the case that today's commanding officers are m- more likely to be removed for personal failings such as moral indiscretions and financial mishandlings things of that sort or for accidents 
such as firing, fire on the ship, I should say, grounding, collision, that once barely made the news. You also make the case that they're removed generally via administrative investigations very different from those outlined in regulations and procedures. And finally, you make the claim that this culture of removal in the Navy comes about as a result of an improper conflation or a confusion about the concepts mentioned at the outset of accountability, responsibility, and culpability. I, I, I was hoping you'd walk through those three basic claims a little bit and perhaps talk about them in the context of some of the many incidents that you write about more deeply in the book, which are frankly what make the book such terrific reading, um, how you unpack those individual cases and how thoughtful they turn out to be for, uh, for this broader argument. So, again, this is going into you know, some of the things that piqued my interest career-wise. Uh, my career has followed or been just ahead of the full integration of women into the service. And if you go back to the early 90s, you had a spate of flag officers being removed for sexual indiscretions, uh, up to and including the man who'd been commandant at the academy when I was a, a student. And a lot of those were, some were clear, some were less clear. Uh, what makes a clear case as opposed to a, a, a less clear? <laughs> well, the, the clearest are the ones where in the, the officer just comes out and says, yes, we had an affair. Uh, that's a pretty clear piece to it. Less clear are, uh, and I'll use Tony Watson's because his is an ultimate of how bad things can look. Uh, the He was a... One star, I believe had been selected for two stars, had, or maybe been a frocked one star at the time, because I think we were able to frock people back then. Uh, I think he had been elected to receive a second star. Yeah, and uh, he was the head of Navy recruiting, was at a conference, was in a, in a, a private or maybe a government vehicle with an ombudsman, and she made an accusation that he had acted improperly towards her sexual advance or something. And there's only the two of them. So it's like he said, she said no real evidence, but it was sufficient for the Navy to remove him from his command there. And since he was a frocked one star, he reverted back to 06 and retired shortly thereafter as an 06. And it wasn't really talked about. Uh, and by all accounts, Tony Watson was like, I mean, I have no negative thoughts of him as the as the commandant. Uh, he was a good and upstanding naval officer and got, again, by all accounts, got caught up in this. And what goes through the fleet is, oh, yeah, don't be alone with women. There's a lot of naval officers that fully understand where Vice President Pence is coming from when he says he won't be alone even in an elevator, which I think is an extreme stance. But I, I can empathize with where he is. I comprehend that concern. Uh, and it's not anything to do with the individuals involved. It's got nothing to do with you know, the, the male who's concerned about being in an elevator 
with a woman. It's got nothing to do with the woman. It's got everything to do with the perceptions from the outside. Uh, I saw an executive officer and commanding officer who were removed from their posts, accused of having an affair, which both of them vehemently denied. But because the impression amongst the crew was that they were having an affair, that was enough. Uh, But the personal and the personal it's. It's what makes the cover of the papers. It's what it's why the National Enquirer sells so many papers. It's why the New York Post is lured. It's why the it's what people are interested in. They're not the optics of office behavior matters much or more than the substance of performance or competence. Well, and here's at what point is there a difference between optics and competence sure competence yeah. is Performance, a competence it, they're all subjective uh, the i mean there were two successive cnos one of them was really happy with all the work that joe sestak did and the next one fired him so sestak didn't change at all during that time he was who he was but the bosses changed out uh and it's, it's become you know The minute we threw the minute women came into the service, there began to be more sexual incidents. That does not mean that women are the cause of any of these things. The Navy and sexual indiscretion go back to before the founding of the Navy. It's part of life. Uh, uh, The line, I guess, from the British Navy that the three traditions were rum, sodomy and the lash. That's pre any of this. So it's not just because women came into the service. And this was one of the arguments that I heard people making is that we had more commanding officers fired because we had women in the service. Like, no, that there's nothing that supports that contention. Uh, You don't find that echoed in your data. No, not at all. Uh, If anything, every my data shot down. Every preconceived notion, every urban legend that we had about commanding officers being removed from command. And this is, again, why I go with removed, because you can't go off off the detached for cause. I ended up looking for commanding officers who had really, really short tours or that because either the short tour, you know, three months, six months, nine months out of a normal 12 to 24 month tour. That was either an interim commanding officer, so the guy before got removed, or that individual was removed. And from there, it's dig through and dig through and dig through. And as I came through it, I found very few commanding officers who were removed as a result of a failure for an inspection. Do you feel like this is different than what you would find to be true in the Army or the Air Force? Oh, absolutely. To put it even different, you you think it's quite a bit different than you would expect to be true in, in the senior leadership ranks of civilian organizations. Is the Navy really that uniquely different in how uh, the external appearance of personal conduct registers as competence in the job? So, and that's kind of like four questions wrapped up into one. So I'll see if I can. I'm sorry. It's okay. No, it's good. No, it's it's good because, well, so the different services have different ways of doing things. Uh, The Marine Corps is 
far more likely to remove someone with extreme prejudice and for all practical purposes, cashier them out of the Marine Corps. And that can get them in trouble sometimes and has in the recent past. The Air Force, who is very much about appearance, is less likely to do it publicly, but more likely to do it for less obvious reasons. And there have been some really bad investigations. And I I have only done these at a very superficial layer based on the things that come out in the press and the benefit of talking here over eight years with other service officers. I mean, the the War College teaching here has been more joint than my joint tour was in the Pentagon. The Army has a history of carefully moving people around to move the less competent on to someplace else. Now, social media has changed that some. The 24-hour news cycle has changed that some. But it is still you're more likely to get a press release for your removal if you're in the Navy. Uh, You're more likely, I think, to get removed for doing something wrong or bad in the Marine Corps. And then the other two are somewhere in the middle. How that, how that applies to the civilian world. Well, that's where take a look at the Uber CEO. There are to some degree, civilian world is catching up to where the Navy was about 20 years ago, where I think it was Admiral Roughhead made the statement that, you know, commanding officers, there's no differentiation anymore between the private life and public life. That when you're a commanding officer, everything you do is in the public sphere. And that has now reached a point where accusations can be sufficient to end a career, either on the civilian side or the military side, which is the the mere implication. Absolutely. Which is a a huge difference from uh, President Clinton's statements. I believe it was in his post impeachment uh, acquittal, if I get that phrase right, uh, where he said that even presidents have private lives. There is a huge challenge now in today's world about trying to differentiate the public from the private. And to some degree, the Navy's just been ahead of it. Uh, the Navy, and this again, this is not a new thing. Uh, Chester Nimitz did not like seeing the Navy's dirty laundry aired in public. He wrote a scathing endorsement on husband Kimmel's removal in the investigation and then felt bad about it and never really wrote anything about the Navy again after that. Uh, most may have been sensitive to it. My understanding is that uh, working for a Ernest King could put uh, anybody in a morally competent position. Yeah, there's, and there's, and and I have to be careful about Ernest King because Dave Conan works not too far from me and we're Facebook friends and he'll find me and talk to me about Ernest King if I'm not careful because, but every, it's very easy for four stars to get outsized personalities and outsized mythologies. And as time goes by, those mythologies grow. So, Ernest King's mythology may or may not be true, but it is perception we have over time. And that service reputation. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please continue. And that service service reputation, it it works today. So different individuals will have different reputations based upon what people think of them, not necessarily what they know of them. That's that. 
key finding in your study really struck me. In the modern Navy, you, you wrote, a commander is most likely to be removed for personal misconduct or when the crime of command includes death, press coverage, or most notably damage to the Navy materially or its reputation. Absolutely. Especially the reputation. Uh, yeah. And that's that's where Brett Crozier is. That's where some of the, that's where Bill Moran was. Why do you, well before again before we turn to Crozier? <laughs> what are some of the incidents over the last since forty five that, okay. that you wrote about in the book that are really most strikingly emblematic to you of of the trends you've been talking about for somebody who can't wade through the entire book uh, or to, to tempt them to do so? Which of those cases were were most memorable for you? Most insightful. Well, so if you ask your your average naval officer about the major incidents in the Navy, a lot of them are going to come up with, again, depending on what their ages are, the aircraft crash on the carrier where they found that a whole bunch of guys had been using marijuana at some point in time. It was the early 80s. That one's going to come up. Tailhook is going to come up. Uh, San Francisco's grounding, Greenville with the Hemi Maru. And then in recent years, it'll be the, and I didn't cover those in the, in this book, I'll be covering them in a major addition and upgrade to the book. And hopefully within the next year, uh, the collisions from 2017. Uh, but when I started digging, oh, and USS Cole, that was the other, those are things that people know of, but they aren't the foundational events. So I go through and I'm, I want to start, I want to ground at the end of World War II, and the USS Indianapolis is a well-known story. Uh, there's all sorts of really fabulous modern Navy work that went into dealing with Captain John McVeigh, or Charles McVeigh, and sorting him out. And there was a sixth grader at the time who's now a Navy helicopter pilot who helped champion the cause. Commanding officer of USS Indianapolis, then Commander Bill Toady, who's now retired Captain Toady who's written a couple op-eds on Crozier, was instrumental in getting congressional hearings to sort of clear Charles McVeigh. Uh, so that one was an easy one. But the one that really surprised me was finding about the USS Queenfish and the sinking of the Awa Maru. And this is a submarine commanding officer who fires on an unseen, unidentified target that he assesses right. to be a destroyer based solely upon speed and location. During the fog, he never sees anything. Ends up killing a couple thousand people. It was one of the most terribly tragic. Horribly tragic. And the ship was had a red it was a Red Cross ship. It was a, a relief mission that was out there. The whole thing was was awful. But this guy retires as a two-star. I start reading through that. I'm like, how the hell does that happen? And a lot of it's because it was war. And the biggest difference between those two cases are when when Indianapolis went down, it was a bunch of American kids that died. And when Elliot Laughlin sank the Awamaru, it was mostly Japanese. And that made a difference in 1945, up into the 60s. It's almost like you're expecting less of a commander under the circumstances, less morally, perhaps, less uh, introspection. Not so much. 
if we were very America centric up into the 60s, and there are still people today who believe that the life of, of an American is worth more than the life of any other member of, a, of another country. And I, I am not one that ascribes to that. But if you're working for somebody who does, then if one of your American sailors is killed, that's a much bigger problem than if three fishermen from the Philippines got run over by your ship. Uh, that, that's, that's the world we live in. So I, I started with that one. And then I began to notice that there were there were a lot of collisions. And there was a fair number of groundings and there were ships that were lost and there were sailors that died. But over time, and I took a look at the two, two real famous, actually three famous aircraft carrier collisions, the Wasp and Hobson, the Melbourne and the. My brain just dropped. Uh, Evans. 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 Yes. And then Belknap and Kennedy. And in each of those cases. That's a very famous case. Yes, it becomes less and less dangerous. Uh, fewer people die. The, and then as we get further along in the cases, it became a point where you had these massive collisions and you would have the USS Porter's collision was every bit as bad as what happened with uh, McCain and Fitzgerald, but nobody died. A lot of it happened, just had to do with where the ship was hit and the fact they were going through the Straits of Hormuz at night, and a lot of the crew was up because you just never know what's going to happen there. Uh, one of the ones that really surprised me that I ended up doing a lot of research on, and I had never heard of this one, but I only first heard about it because I would walk my dogs out here at Fort Adams, and there was a plaque on a bench dedicated to the memory of the 100 sailors killed in the explosion on board USS Bennington. I'm like, 100 sailors killed? And I've never heard of this? It turns out that in the process of aircraft carriers and getting better at launching aircraft off of aircraft carriers, uh, hydraulics came into the catapults and a hydraulic fluid was used, which likely atomized and exploded and largely instantaneously killed a hundred sailors. And it made the press here in Newport, lots of front page coverage, not so much outside of Newport. The commanding officer there was a guy named William Rayborn, and he popped up in my database at least twice, if not three times. It was he ran ships that had problems, but it wasn't unusual for the time. But the important part about Rayburn is he's not removed from command. The Navy, in one of its few times where investigation matters, recognizes that everyone who could have told them that was wrong is dead. They theorize what happened. They realize that the ship's crew had no fault at all, and no blame is attached to Rayborn. The the documents are all officially put that way. He goes on to be a three-star and leads the Polaris program. So yeah. he, he's the— I mean, one of, the, easily one of the most important influences on the development of the Navy in the 20th century. Absolutely. And if he had been removed Without from Polaris. command, we things would be different today. Uh, and then you can contrast that—I didn't write about this one, but you contrast that with the Iowa uh, explosion where everyone dies and NCIS concocts this crazy thing about a— a gay suicide for life insurance, it should have been just as easily and eventually was just as easily proven out that everybody died. There's no, there's no, no real knowledge. It wasn't the ship's 
fault. Uh, of course, the difference there is that the commanding officer did suffer career-wise for that because by the time that collision happened, we were not accustomed to losing a lot of sailors. And the really, the really striking thing about your assessment is that trend you identify that the Navy has become so much less forgiving of missteps, <sighs> so much more likely to punish commanding officers. You cite, I think, 330 commanders removed, but 305 of those removals since 1945 fell between 86 and 2018. That's an extraordinarily important developmental insight. Absolutely. Now, why is that? Why is the Navy changing so radically in that period of time? So there, first, I want to get rid of one of the po- one of the possible things people can look at and say is, well, that's just because that's what was publicized. Um, and anyone who has that concern or challenge, I invite them to come up to Rhode Island. We can sit down with my database and I can walk you through the 1500 incidents that I have, because the other thing is that there are in that time frame that since the 80s, there are fewer ships in play than there were in previous times. So it, it, to me, the biggest, I see 1983 as the turning point. And it wasn't until I started digging through and a couple, the way things happen, a couple extraneous places. Uh, John Harvey does, I think it was his valedictory from Fleet Forces Command at the Surface Navy Association does a presentation and he talks about responsibility and how if you don't have one person responsible and no one's responsible and puts a quote up on the screen that kind of stuck with me a little bit. And then years later, I was reading through the, the Beirut bombing commission report and I get back to the end of it and I'm reading this quote and it sounds a whole lot like that other quote that I'd seen. And eventually over time, I dug this quote out and I found that it was attributed to Hyman Rickover. And I found where it first came from and found that, Hyman Rickover might actually have a play in my case studies, which I'd never thought of before. And in hindsight, that was kind of foolish. I really expect the tail hook to be the thing. And then once I started graphing things out, it didn't happen. But the inflection happens around 83. And that's when I start to see that quote, that quote about responsibility cropping up more and more often. It was in that Beirut bombing report. And it was in there because the guy that did the Beirut bombing was a nuclear trained officer named uh, Long, I think Robert Long. That same time frame, you're seeing a fire on board USS Ranger that had, I think, four separate investigations. And it wasn't four separate incidents. It's that the first investigation found that two sailors knowingly misaligned the fuel system. They were qualified. They had been properly trained. They were capable and competent. They, they were capable and competent. They just did the wrong thing. And they went to court martial, were punished. But as that worked its way up the chain of command, the more senior people started looking at it and saying, wait a minute, why are these two junior guys being punished, but no senior people are? Well, on its face, it's because those two junior guys that screwed up. But then a second investigation looked into it, and that reaffirmed the initial findings. A third investigation was placed because the seniors still weren't happy. And then that investigation found that the the chief engineer really probably wasn't the best guy there. The ship had struggled with engineering problems repeatedly over time. And I think Jim Holloway was the CNO at the time, and he was the one that had kept pushing for find the responsibility 
and it really was he just wasn't happy with the answer he was getting because in the end the responsibility fell on three commanding officers and a chief engineer when it really should have fallen on the two guys that misaligned the fuel system and the maintenance community who had continuously reduced the ship's maintenance availabilities to the point where ship identified problems in the fuel system were not being corrected when they needed to be uh, but Holloway was a nuclear trained officer and I, so that, then I had to go looking through the whole Hyman Rickover piece and there is nothing about my study that has gotten more pushback from people who have read it. And that's a, an important point. Uh, there are plenty of people who are happy, happy to talk about the book, but have never actually cracked it open. Uh, but those who have, <laughs> it, it, it's the most amazing, I had, I, I got a report yes. from someone who sat through a meeting who had read the book and he's sitting there with a whole bunch of people and they're talking about it. And all the ones talking most vociferously about it had never read it. It was just fascinating to get that report back. Uh, I wonder, but, one wonders how often that's true. Oh, well, it's the Yogi Bear Especially thing. in the academic world, I think it's particularly oh, common. Talk about it's, books you've and, never read. Yes. Well, in the military academic, and you can ask DJ Armstrong about how often Mahan's quoted when he's not. Or Klaus would I, I said... Can't. I can't resist reading the quote from Rick Over. I, I, I looked okay, it up here. Please do. It's it's one of the most striking quotations I've ever seen from Rick Over as well. He's testifying before Congress in 1961, and, and he says the following, quote, Responsibility is a unique concept. It can only reside and inhere in a single individual. You may share it with others, but your portion is not diminished. You may delegate it but it is still with you. You may disclaim it, but you cannot divest yourself of it. Even if you do not recognize it or admit its presence, you cannot escape it. If responsibility is rightfully yours, no evasion or ignorance or passing the blame can shift the burden to someone else. Unless you can point your finger at the man who is responsible when something goes wrong, then you have never had anyone really responsible, unquote. And that, there are two ways to take that quotation. The most common way is that that means that Rickover meant that you must always have and can only have one person responsible for something. And you see that in the Navy today where an 05 or 06 commanding officers removed from command because something went wrong on board the ship. But the other way, and the way I prefer to do it, and this is based upon a long anecdote that portrays how Rickover, more so than just the testimony, but how Rickover discusses responsibility for, and I can't remember the specific instance, something went wrong. And as Rickover is chewing out the folks that work for him, he's looking and saying, Joe, you were responsible for this, but Andrew, you were responsible for a portion of it as well, so it's your responsibility. And Charlie, you were responsible for it as well, and I, because I'm in charge, I'm responsible for it as also. And he says that in that quote, that you can share responsibility, but your portion is not diminished. There's been a movement to try and individualize responsibility and tie it with command. And what's happened is then that... And I'm going to use the word fall guy, but it's not the right phrase. But the, the I guess one of the, one of the lines I've heard that, is that's that, a very striking formulation. What you just said, 
a movement to individualize responsibility and tie it to command. That the commanding officer is individually responsible and accountable and now culpable for what happens inside the lifelines of the ship, and no one external to the ship is at all accountable, responsible, or culpable. And that's that's the part that really started to bother me because when – if you keep accountability inside the lifelines, then you are – Presuming that the commanding officer has sufficient authority to control every aspect of a ship's operations. And that's just not true. Uh, a friend of mine pointed out to me not too long ago that today's commanding officer. Meaning officers, he's responsible in terms of how. It, it, for, we should digress for a moment and, and have yeah. you explain the difference between accountability, okay. responsibility, and culpability. Because what you just said plays importantly to the distinction between being able to offer an explanation for something. And being in a position decisively to affect an outcome. And and this is one of those. And I one of my another one of my office mates went through and spent some time thinking through on this. And there's a longer piece about how, how authority works into this as well. But for now, I'm just going to do the authority, responsibility, and culpability. Or sorry, uh, accountability, responsibility, and culpability. Accountability today is normally used as it's it's, it's a synonym for punished. And that's not what it's intended for. Um, The idea of accountability is being held to account, to give an account for your actions, to say what – to answer the question, what did you do? Or what happened. Or what happened. Uh, Tell me what happened. That is giving an account. An investigation in and of itself is accountability, regardless of what happens afterwards. But in order to be, and I think, properly punished, in order to have culpability, to actually have blame for something that happened, then you need to have not accountability but responsibility. And responsibility of those three words is the only one that has both a forward-looking and a backward-looking context. Accountability is always looking back. Characterization. Uh, Culpability is always looking back. And responsibility. And it really works well for commanding officers. Commanding officer has responsibility to look ahead and recognize where a ship is going, what a ship is doing, and how to do things right. He also has a responsibility to look back and see what went right, what went wrong, and adjust to that forward-looking piece again. And when, when you have accountability stop at the ship's lifelines… You're taking the responsibility for external actions away from the shoreside staffs. Shoreside staffs make many decisions that commanding officers are left with the responsibility to address, but little authority to change. And quite often they end up being culpable for things long and well outside their control. Uh, Like what? What kinds of examples of that uh, externally imposed responsibility? Uh, would appeal to a commanding officer today? So every ship is designed to be manned to a certain number. It's a fungible number. And the, the, we, used to, we joked early off, early, already in the 90s that the way to have a, you know, if your ship was designed to have 300 people and you only had 250 on board, the way to solve the manning problem was just change the requirement from 300 to 250. 
It doesn't solve the problem, but it means that the ship is now fully manned. And we've done that on more than one occasion. So anecdote, I'm in command of Whidbey Island. I've been there for a year and a half. And through a confluence of things, I end up where my senior gunner's mate, the senior person in charge of the ship's armory, the ship's small arms, is a fresh out of boot camp seaman. And is the only gunner's mate I have on board. I'm supposed to have, I think, seven. I cannot go down to the bars and impress people and force them into my crew to make up the missing numbers. The Navy across the board was short on gunner's mates. So there is literally nothing I could do as a commanding officer within my authority other than say, I have a problem and ask for help. That's it. And if we had failed, a, actually, if we had failed a gunnery inspection during that time, I would have been held responsible for that failure, even though the manning and the lack of seniority in the manning was going to be a proximate cause to that failure and was not brought on by me. That is the kind of example that continues to bother me. And this is the – I wrote a piece in right after the, the collisions in November of 17. It was by a lot of senior people misunderstood. Surface forces cannot snap their fingers and get more sailors. All they can do is move – it's a shell game, moving sailors from one ship to another to try and plug holes. The Bureau of Personnel – can't snap their fingers and get more sailors in. They have to take time to recruit them and bring them in. There's no easy and quick fixes to any of the problems we have. So what does a commanding officer in that situation do? Uh, <laughs> he's going to go through the same, same oh. evolution, presumably, but write, write memoranda up and down, well, presumably oh. up the chain for the file yes. cabinet. Saying, send, I told yes. them what could happen, and I'm going to do it anyway because I'm told to, but I should be covered. And not having hope, what I need to do this well. Well, ask the question, are you covered? And I, it dep- again, it goes back to, to your boss. At that time, I had a boss that I trusted and got along with well, so I felt comfortable. Three months later, I was working for a boss who I did not trust and still to this day have occasional flashbacks to the time working for him because I felt no support for my, my chain of command going up. Uh, you have to basically trust in timing and luck and hope that nothing bad happens and really try and get ahead of anything that might. And that's hard. And that's not the way the system was put together. The, did if you a ship, expect, uh, going into a command bill like that, did, did, did you have oh. an expectation <laughs> that it would be fair, that you would be given what you needed to do the job adequately or well, that, that not, the Navy not, would understand its shortcomings and, and allow you not the just space me. you needed. I was sitting at, God, this is at the end of my command tour as a breakfast for the, all the commanding officers in the amphibious or amphibious or group two, amphibious group two. And the new, flag was coming in and I just happened to sit at the table where she's sitting and it's Admiral Michelle Howard who retires as BCNO and a vice admiral. Yeah, and yeah. 
I'm, quite famous. Yes, I'm sitting there and we're talking and one of the new commanding officers makes this comment. And I, I'm so glad it wasn't me because I'd have probably said it in a bitter way because I was at the end of my tour and he's new to it. And he looks at the admiral and says, when you take command, you expect that the ship has been manned, trained and equipped to the minimum possible level. At the minimum, you're expecting that. But when you check on board and it's not it has not reached that minimum. You spend your entire tour trying to bring that ship up to the bare minimum, which means you never have a chance to really seek excellence. You're always trying to be just good enough to meet the minimum. And the Navy, the Navy, the service is supposed to man, train and equip ships for prompt and sustained combat operations at sea so that you can take those man, trained and equipped vessels give them to the geographic combatant commands and utilize them for operations but if the ship isn't manned properly because the navy doesn't have enough people that's not the captain's fault if the ship is not properly equipped because the navy has not bought the spares has decided to to not have spares which was something we did for a while we began to we believed in this idea of just-in-time logistics so that if something broke, we wouldn't have one on the shelf, but we would know what container it was in and could ship it, uh, which was a big change from what we did into the, from the 40s all the way up into the early 90s. And if a ship isn't properly trained because boot camp decided that they weren't going to do swim qualifications that week or the range was closed so they did, couldn't do live fire shoots, captain's got to fix that problem. But it's not his fault. And that is that there's a lot of commanding officers who have chosen to finish their 05 tour and never go afloat again because the system is not designed to help commanding officers succeed it's not designed to help them fail but it's not designed to help them succeed and that is going to make some heads explode from some people out there who are going to vociferously challenge that statement and that's a very categorical point it that's what I experienced. That's what many others experienced. If if people did experience these systems supporting them, then great. And I'm happy that they had that experience. It's not been I mine and it's not that, been others. In, in saying that, I think you, you've provided some shape to the concept of culpability that uh, I, I was hoping you would at least comment on. So and this is the culpability part. And I. I thank in the in the book, I thank the folks at Sailor Bob, the the many hundreds of regular posters there and one I didn't call out. But the one who introduced the word, it's a British officer who goes by the um, the nom de tron, as I call it, of Alfred the Great. And we're having this argument back and forth as, as Internet arguments can go about authority, accountability and responsibility. And he just chimes in and goes, I think the word you're all trying to talk about is culpability. And it's like a light bulb went off in my head. It's a word we don't use we, to the point where it, you'll hear, you know, we have had accountability actions. We've held somebody accountable for something. What we really mean to say is that we have found them culpable. We have assessed that they had a responsibility to act and they did not. They had an opportunity to act and they did not. Therefore, they are culpable. They are deserving of blame and they should be punished in some way. If we could get the language so that we move away from the idea that responsibility is this all encompassing thing and instead say responsibility, that means that you have the capacity, capability and need to act 
and that you have to have all those things that accountability is simply nothing more than explaining what happened so that you can get to the truth of the matter and then determine culpability, then determine who is to blame. Instead, what we have is almost every investigation today starts off with who are we going to blame for this problem? There's a great anecdote in towards the end of uh, I think it's Pennington's book, No Higher Honor, where Paul Wren is talking about the inspector that came on board, Samuel B. Roberts, after their mine collision or their mine strike. And that that investigation is still classified to this day, by the way, and various people have tried to get it released and it's just squirreled away for some reason. Uh, Wren firmly believed the investigator was there for one reason and one reason only. And that was find out who was to blame. And that's not the purpose of an investigation. You mentioned that 05, some 05s uh, round out their tour and then never go afloat again. Yes. Presumably by virtue of, of this complex command culture of accountability, responsibility, and unfortunate culpability uh, that operates invertedly from how it should. What's the Navy losing here? Um, why would anybody continue to do this job, a job that seems to involve an enormous degree of downside liability? And I, I, mean, I think captains, in my experience, do pretty well in the Navy and retire reasonably well. But the upside is, it strikes me, given the risks and liabilities you face, probably not commensurate to what can happen. Um, lots of, lots of terrible things happen at sea and people get hurt and equipment gets damaged and you make bad decisions and choices and you end your career in ignominy and shame. Um, why but do people continue to do this? What is it that drives naval officers to accept this command culture and put themselves at risk? Well, and this is again, multiple pieces to go through the, the first one. And this is also why I wanted to have the conversation about removals. Removals are exceptionally rare. Even when you see a spike, you're talking about less than 1% of all commanding officers. And even if you start breaking it down by community and by subcommunity, you're still at about, at the highest you can get, maybe 2 or 3%. And then that's, of course, across the, a year, which is really probably two years of year group types that are out there. It is real. It seems and the narrative for people is that firing happens a lot when the reality is, is it's very, very rare. And that's so one of the things common, cut, it's less common than you think, because it and this is Admiral Davidson took a lot of grief for this comment to Angus King last year. But he tells Senator King that there were 288 ships that didn't collide. We are talking about Fitzgerald and, and McCain, and that's a true statement, and that is something that gets lost in the overall conversation. So why do a lot of commanding officers continue? Well, because their experience is different from those who have seen someone removed, and you can get four captain commanding officers who have had one or two command tours, and amongst the four of them, they will have all four had exceptionally different experiences because they've been on different ships and different life cycles working for different bosses. And that makes a difference. And we forget that sometimes. The second thing is we recruit people who are very goal driven, who are very 
career driven, career minded or to some degree egocentric, which is not a bad thing. And they want to lead and they're ambitious. And the way to move up in the Navy is command. But anecdotally, we're starting to lose a lot of people early on. And it's one thing to have somebody take an 05 command, do passably well, meet the bare minimum, have a change of command with a band is the, the phrase, and then choose not to go back to sea again. Or you know, in the case of Elaine Luria, leave the Navy, run for Congress and go into Congress. Uh, that happens. But we have no idea what kind of talent we're leaving on the table when someone decides at the end of their department head tour, hey, I've been doing really good and I know I'll go on to be to do command, but I'm just not liking the way I'm not liking the vibe of the, of the, the feel of how things are right now. And I just I'm going to go do something different. We don't know what we're losing. And this is not a new we don't know what we're losing. Yeah, we and we and we, we won't. And it but it's one of the questions we should be asking. We should always aspire. And this is especially for the surface Navy, but aviation's getting there, too. Uh, we should always aspire that anybody who joins our community, anybody who joins the Navy wants to stay. And that we have to decide as a community who leaves because everybody wants to stay. Instead, what we all too often have is we worry about what's the minimum number we need to keep. And then we adjust the system so that we have that number. And this is the danger. And this is when when Admiral Richardson said, hey, ship captains, you guys need to tell us when something's wrong. And he said it in congressional, congressional testimony. You know, if you hear of one of these captains, what are you going to do about it? He says, I'll go down the pier, shake their hand and give them a medal. And the groan across the command community in disbelief was because no one believed that was really what was going to happen. If you pointed out that your ship had a problem, you weren't going to get a medal and a handshake. You were going to get told, hey, Captain, what are you going to do to fix it? And junior officers see that. And that is it's a challenge. And well, the worst thing in the, the world, right kinds of people, though. We we are. We're we're bringing the right kinds of people. And the by and large, and this is even even a commanding officer that does a mediocre command tour has still met the requirements. We all too often think that excellence is the standard. And we've had that statement. Excellence is the standard. And it's it's great. And it's aspirational. But the reality is the minimum the, the minimum is the minimum for a reason. And if you meet the minimum, you have done your job. And that really goes against the idea of a culture of excellence. But a culture of excellence is predicated on the idea that you are taking a command that is properly manned, trained, and equipped to begin with. And then you get right back into that cycle again. And for that reason, you think the Navy should be more concerned uh, with this, this perception of risk and command than it is more it, concerned it, with underscoring that, that, that the, the, the liability potentially of command is not as great as you put it, as it well, seems. I would rather say concern. I would just rather say the Navy needs to be more transparent and have more conversations about it. Uh, I just finished working with the, and I should say I'm on terminal leave. So being, yeah, I'm technically attached to the Naval War College, but I'm not really of the Naval War College anymore. Um, but I worked with a guy there who was vehemently against studying problems, against studying problem ships, against studying things that went wrong. 
His statement was, we know what wrong looks like. We don't know what right looks like. And my pushback on that has been, you know, doctors treat the sick. Doctors study people who are sick to find out how to make them well. They also study well people. So you have to have the two of them. You cannot exclude one for the other. You can't study just problems and you can't study just goodness. But the Navy doesn't want to talk about the problems unless it's able to boil things down to a soundbite that doesn't catch the nuance of what happened. The 2017 collisions, I heard then commanding officer of the Surface Warfare Officer School, Captain Scott Robertson, who's now a one star uh, out in the West Coast. And he said it came down to one ship where the commanding officer made a bad decision. That was John S. McCain and the other ship. That had a culture of non-compliance, and that was USS Fitzgerald. And that was the the short soundbite that the Navy chose as the way to describe those two incidents. And both of those are patently wrong. So when you are providing lessons learned and you boil them down to a soundbite that can be proven wrong, it's really difficult to have an open conversation Unless you're willing to start questioning all of the sacred cows, all of the shore support, all of the pieces that go into providing a ready, capable ship, and you want to do more than just say, hey, Captain, what are you going to do to fix it? And none of that should remove the the responsibility. And this is the fear people have. There's a fear that you can dilute responsibility. And again, going to the Rickover thing, Rickover says you can't dilute it, but you can share it. It's not a 100% of something. There is no, you know, if you've got four people and you equally share responsibility, that doesn't mean you each have 25% of it. If you equally share responsibility, you all four have 100% responsibility. And that's a really tough concept for people to grasp. That you could have four people who are all equally responsible for something because they want it to just be one person. Well, it doesn't have to be. It can be four people and they have to work together to make things happen. Uh, but it's so simplifying it also has the virtue of allowing you to push it into the background and move it. Oh, that, that's the other thing, too. And, and look at both of those. The problems were one captain made a bad decision, so that's internal to the ship. Nothing about you know, the moving, removing physical throttles and putting in touchscreens that had a really weird user interfa- interface were buggy and nobody knew how to operate them because they hadn't been trained. That's not part of that narrative. And the other one about a culture of noncompliance which completely, again, is it's all about the commanding officer, completely ignoring that this was a, by all accounts, a one-off that everybody else knew to follow the rules, that the individual officer on the deck at the time knew to follow the rules. And it doesn't mean there weren't problems in the ship. There were a lot of people that didn't do their job that night. But if you boil it down to a soundbite that's not accurate, it's you start to lose credibility when you're talking about these things. And that lack of credibility works its way down the chain of command. I can't think of a better moment to turn to the 800-pound gorilla. (laughs) We're talking on the 12th of April, 2020, and it was, that would be 10 10 10 days days ago. Was it the 2nd or the 4th that he was, that Captain Crozier was relieved as commanding officer of the the Roosevelt? Either 8 days or 10 days ago. Yeah, and it's Uh, been less than 2 weeks since he sent his memo. Yes, 
it's it's all very very fresh in the public mind and in the headlines. Uh, that and the controversy surrounding the circumstances of the decision to remove him by Secretary of the Navy Maudley, uh, and just a few days ago the resignation of the acting secretary uh, himself, which which you may fairly describe as a separate, perhaps more politicized issue, or not, insofar as you can make a principled argument that command culture in the Navy has and always has been inflected by broader political culture. But observing this from your point of view must have been very, very interesting. Is, is there a particular view that you think, uh, from the point of view of, of, the, of, of the analysis you offer in the book and the current state of command culture in the Navy, is, is there a view that you adopt? Well, the the first and most important thing I need to pre- preface this with, because I've I've seen a lot of very passionately written opinion pieces about this. At this point in time, there are probably a half dozen or maybe a dozen people in the world who know what really happened. We have not heard anything from Brett Crozier except for the memo that was sent out. We only have two official statements from then Acting Secretary of the Navy, Thomas Modley, the one that first came out when he announced the removal, and then the second one, his speech on board Thomas uh, Roosevelt. We have a statement from the Chief of Naval Operations that is interesting and leaves some room for interpretation as to which side of things he was on. And that's it. The So... There's there is far more supposition and assumption and it, to some degree, people taking their individual experiences and then placing it on top of what they think happened, not what they know happened. But looking at what and you brought the quote up, the leak of that memo, the open release of it served within the Beltway to appear and look like it embarrassed the Navy, which from using, you know, what I found means that Brett Crozier's removal was a foregone conclusion. Didn't have to. Yeah, it didn't have to be because the Navy could have looked at that and said, you know, right. Captain said all this stuff and this is what we're doing to move out. And it's right and good of him to feel frustrated that we're not moving fast enough. We are trying the absolute best we can. His focus is on his ship where it should be, and we are focused in many other places, and we're trying to work with limited resources as quickly as we can, and just to have that open conversation about it. Instead, the the acting secretary chose the alternative view, which – and it is it's not lost on me that he is a class of 83 grad from the Naval Academy – that he served seven years. He left in 1990. So the culture that he grew up in was right at the height of the change in how commanding officers were removed. So he would have been part of the group that said, if you embarrass the Navy, you're gone. Uh, He would have been part of, of that understanding. And inside D.C., it's a totally different world from any place else. Uh, and I'm the other thing that came from the uh, the David Ignatius, Ignatius piece, the the fear that Secretary Modley had that if or the concern he had that if he didn't remove Crozier, that he would be removed. Um, that's that Modley would be. Yes. Um, 
And we don't, we don't know. We have no idea what was really going on in Secretary Mobley's head. We have no idea what was going on in, in Brett Crozier's head. It is shocking to me that the memo got leaked, but the accompanying email has not made it out into the greater world yet. That is, there, there's, I have a lot of people saying that this is going to make a great case study in time. Uh, I agree with them. It would be nice if we have much more information. It would be nice if we could hear from Brett Crozier. Uh, and we don't know if he's going to be a Bryce Benson who will come out and speak after he gets really good counsel. Or if he's going to be like 99% of the other removed commanding officers and just fade off into the woodwork. Uh, we don't know. You must have a sense, uh, having been the commanding officer of a pretty substantial, uh, pretty substantial ship, what he faced uh, circumstantially, if not precisely, um, in the way of a decision space. I mean, he, he's underway. He has sailors after a port visit who have been exposed to a virus. The virus seems to be very contagious. More and more appear to be infected. Uh, had that happened to you under the circumstances you faced, I mean, what what's the procedure as you understood it at the time for uh, alerting the chain of command for making choices about what to do? Um, what do you feel the constraints would have been? What would have been out of bounds? What are your priorities at that point? Well, to start with, and this will give a piece to it, somewhere in this and so much, when you're talking about both COVID-19 and the Theodore Roosevelt, Every day is a different knowledge level, and we have to remember that. What we know today is not what we knew yesterday. Uh, but somewhere over last weekend, I sent an email to a, a mentor. He and I talked about major going to, for me to go to Captain Command, and he had helped me come to the realization that there was really no – I was comfortable where I was at, that uprooting myself and my family at the time didn't make a lot of sense, so I chose to forego – uh, major command. And I had had a long conversation with him. So what I told him made sense. And I sent him an email and said, this reinforced my decision not to go because had I gone, I would have been just like Brett Crozier. And I would have sent something like that, whether it was official radio message, whether it was a direct email. And it probably would have been much more pointed because I have a I can have a very candid writing style uh, Brett Crozier's was much more polished than mine would have been at that point. Uh, he was trying. He he doesn't have 24/7 news the same way we do. He doesn't get internet surfing the same way we do. He does not have all the same information, and he's getting conflicting guidance from, which was really conflicting conflicting at the time, and we had no idea what the real numbers were two weeks ago. Uh, we had no idea how. It was going to affect the population of sailors he had working for him and aircraft carriers. Yeah, there's 5000 people on board, but depending on what you're doing, it's not 5000 people all the time. If the whole flight deck crew was out sick, you could still drive the ship around, but you can't fly aircraft. If the reactor department got sick, you might be able to launch aircraft, but you're not driving that ship very far. So even if 10 percent are sick. And in their beds because of a fever and congestion, it doesn't matter that it's just 500 people. It matters which 500 people it is. 
Uh, and Do you since there's anything to the, uh, the the complicating factor that he had a rear admiral afloat with him at the time, I mean, uh, admiral the, the and this, I'm gonna I, I need to I'm gonna walk this try and walk this carefully because I'm still on active duty for just under 60 days and I don't want to I don't intend this to be disrespectful to anyone, but and you can see this in uh, uh, Commander Salamander at the USNI blog I think on Thursday had a piece that spoke to this. We know at the junior command level and we know at the highest command level what the opinions were about what was going on. There are four or five flag officers in between those who we have heard nothing from. Uh-huh. And I, this is, you know, in order for me to have sent a letter like that, and this is me doing exactly what I've said others have done, but I'm, I'm going to at least be open about it. In order for me to have sent a letter like that, I would have had to have had little to no trust in my boss. I would have had to have had little or no trust and support from the shore staff in the shore establishment. And when speaking to the chief of staff for the secretary of the Navy, I would have either been hesitant, suspicious, or not wanting to throw my chain of command under the bus at that moment. And that's where a memo like that comes into play because it doesn't, it says the Navy, not this office or that office. It's very nonspecific in who should be culpable for the lack of action with regards to that crew. If, if Brett Crozier ever talks, it will be fascinating to hear what the process was and where what he what he hoped to gain, what his intent was. Um, Is it but, a mistake to look for the responsible individual in this case, as your 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 study has so strongly put it? Is this a function of a different kind of problem, a new kind of threat for which the Navy, its decision making structures, its command processes? Uh, the way it's conventionally managed decision-making simply wasn't well-prepared. So one for which the captain of a ship, even so prestigious, a ship as one of the 10 aircraft carriers in the fleet, uh, he, he couldn't well have been expected to make the best choices in every case. Well, whether or not he made the best choices is completely up. That's a subjective thought and really that's very much up for debate right now. Uh, there are everything I'm seeing is if you are, I'll use me as the median point. If you're senior to me and older than me, you think Crozier's the villain. If you're junior to me and younger than me, you think Crozier's the hero. Uh, it really there's a a dividing line about how people are approaching this. That's depressing. The, that there's no 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 good objective analytic standpoint that we can well, identify and, and, and that is clarify that we're just victims of our position in the or, in the organization. So that is why I would say it is very important that we identify where responsibility lies, and there should be a clear and sworn statement from every one of those flag officers. There should be a clear and sworn statement from the medical department, the medical officers on board Theodore Roosevelt. The fleet surgeon should be saying, this is what we advised. The chat transcripts, the emails between the ship and the shore establishment, all of that should be part of a Navy investigation whose sole purpose is to figure out where the impediments were such that a commanding officer felt compelled to write a memo like that. 
That's it. Yeah. Not whether yeah. it was right of him to write the memo, but what it, was it that actually that he felt the need to do it. But instead, yeah. what we're, we're going to end up looking for is who leaked it. It doesn't. That's yeah. it. For my mind, that's completely. It doesn't matter who leaked it. What was it that prompted a commanding off? This is somebody who was in his third command, his third ship senior leadership position, because he he had command of a uh, aircraft squadron, command of a deep draft ship, was exo of an aircraft carrier, and now was commanding officer of an aircraft carrier. This is not the kind of person who just wakes up in the morning and says, "I'm going to write a four-page memorandum and leak it to the press." That's exactly. not that individual. No matter exactly. how much people want to paint it that way, that is not the kind of person we have commanding our aircraft carriers. Uh, exactly. So there is something that can be gained from this. And if we instead put our head in the sand or even worse, just ignore it as a one off, that doesn't do any favors to anyone who comes behind us, because the chances. It would be very nice if we only if we don't deal with another pandemic like this for 100 years. But if you go through the the escalation of MERS and SARS to the the COVID-19 now, it is far more likely that a year or two or 10 years from now, we will see something like this. And if we have not inculcated the lessons learned into real, no kidding, lessons learned, like we need to have arrangements with various hotel um, hotel companies that they will give up empty rooms so we can quarantine people when people people come ashore, stuff like that. Or we need to be able to rapidly, as a national level, rapidly convert hotels into hospitals, that kind of thing. The same way that we can take up aircraft from the uh, the airlines to use them to move troops from place to place. Uh, there are lessons we can take from this, and the Navy should take them as how do, do these shore staffs actually exist to support the ships, or are the ships there to support the staffs? It's definitely well, not that hope latter. Navy responds. Let's hope the Navy responds as you've described and learn the right great, lessons about what I have great hope and trust in the same. Yeah, yes. I have great hope and trust in this CNO because we have heard very little from him since he became the chief of naval operations. And I think that's good. Uh, he is not. This is the first major incident he's been caught up in. Uh, his predecessor didn't have that luxury. I think that's probably as good a note as any to end on. We have uh, talked for a substantially longer amount of time than I anticipated originally, but every moment of it has been insightful and a great pleasure. You've got two people who are paid to speak. (laughs) We're both, we're both, we both, for a living, we paid to speak for a living. So of course we're going to talk. Thank you, Dr. Jones. I really do appreciate the time. And uh, if anybody wants to talk to me, I'm pretty easy to find. So happy to have a conversation. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.